When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Paul Vanderclay, who is a minister of a Calvinist Reformed Church in Sacramento, California. Today's interview with Paul is the second one that I've done with him, and in it we discuss the qualities that make Christianity as a religion more successful as a religion than is social justice as a religion. This is partially in response to my previous discussion with James Lindsay, who made the case that social justice is a religion that finds its God in race, class, and various other forms of identity, and because of that, fails to achieve its ultimate goal of a perfect world. This interview with Paul Vanderclay really dives into Christianity and God and sin and what it means to make a narrative that binds a people together, and possibly that which binds people together in a way where they don't tear each other apart. That all said, here's Paul. There's that one offshoot of the Quakers, I think it's the Shakers. Yeah. And they weren't allowed to have sex, so right. they, they really didn't go too far. That's right, that's right. They uh they they kind of um they kind of bred themselves. I guess debred themselves. But they left nice furniture. Did they? Oh the they Shakers? Left be- Shakers left beautiful furniture. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You think that they would have used it to copulate, but that was part of it. <laughs> Well, we are recording, so we can do whatever you'd like. Um, uh, well, we were talking about something that was interesting to me that you're bringing up. Because about two years ago, Karen Strawn um, contacted me because for whatever reason, she liked the videos that I was doing. She's, uh, she, I don't know if you know her. She was in the Red Pill movie. She had a guest appearance there. She's a YouTube star uh, talking about men's rights issues. But we were we had this long discussion, I think, in the October of 2017, um, where she dialed in to interview me, but I ended up interviewing her and we got into this really long discussion about the culture war. And she kind of, I was asking the question, is there any way for us to band together? Do we always need to have an enemy? Is it common enemy that's going to bind us together? And without that common enemy, is our society going to fall apart? And just now when we met in your parish earlier today, you said that what would tie us together is a common narrative. And that felt like a better solution than a common enemy because the enemy is just going to have to, I, I don't know. The enemy is only going to channel our energies in a certain way. Whereas a narrative has the capacity to channel it in a variety of ways. You, I think it's an interesting question to ask whether you can have a narrative without an adversary. Oh, okay. And I think it's, I think it's a narrative affords <laughs> a lot. A narrative affords a lot of diversity within a narrative, but narratives almost always have an adversary or a challenge that it has to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you don't have a narrative. You don't have a story that's worth listening to. Well then what is it about? Okay. Well, let's look, let's look at uh, your religion, which is probably the hero would be Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. What is the adversary of Jesus? Is it Satan or yeah. is it something else? Or what does Satan represent? Satan 
it's rebellion. I mean, the Christianity has said there's there's Satan, the world, and the human nature. Okay. These are these are the three adversaries in a sense. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, for example, um, a lot of the Gospel of Mark is set up as Jesus versus um, Jesus, both versus chaos in some ways, but mm-hmm. also Jesus versus Satan and the enemy. Okay, the enemy. The enemy. Like, is this like some sort of Alex Jones conspiracy? Like, <laughs> deep state Israel, it's, Roman it's, conspiracy? It's thing? church lady. It's <laughs> Satan. Um, but, but you know, if you look at, say, Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Okay. And yeah. so these enemies don't necessarily have to be human beings. In fact, every alien movie would have... A thing that unites humanity against some foreign invader. Now, principalities and powers are non-human. Hmm. Well, they're principalities and powers. They are supra or meta uh, forces. Right. And actually, the conversation that Jonathan Peugeot and I had, um, the last conversation we had, we started talking about angels and demons and principalities and powers. Yeah. You can think of, you know, for example, maybe one way to think of a principality that would be a way people would understand would be Uncle Sam. Mm. So Uncle Sam is a sort of a principality. Yeah. And via Uncle Sam, all kinds of people can be united mm. for him or against him. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at, for example, posters, recruiting posters in the First and Second World War, you will have you, Germany gets Germany and Japan and Second World War get get represented as principalities and the United States as a principality. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. so, all right. I mean, enemy need not be another human being, Yeah, but there needs to be something to fight against. Well, then that, that folds back into a certain, I guess, version of the social justice narrative that we are fighting against the principality of structural racism, right. of patriarchy. Right. Um, and structural racism isn't as, uh, it's, it doesn't have the same ring or kind of mythological power as the patriarchy or as Rome or like as a, a god or a principality, but it, it, the way that they talk about it as being implicit in everything and just implicit inside of all of us and in all these different structures and interactions, they're, right. they're trying to point to an enemy that, that's, that's a, of a higher order of magnitude or of being than just, you know, the white male or the, you know, the oppressive class, but more of the structure. And I wonder if that is at once a kind of a better way of going about things or what are the, what are the pitfalls when you say that the enemy is a principality? It's a non-human or superhuman uh, pattern of existence. And then how does that pit yourself in a, uh, I guess, a, a fruitful struggle or developing uh, coherence of the individual when facing that? Well, one of the things that it does in, for example, a narrative like you have in the Bible, the principality is out there, but it can also be in here. Yeah. And so, and that would scale to woke religion or what I call progressive liberationism, where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the racism is out there, but the racism is in here. Yeah. And then you have to figure out, well, how can, and this is kind of the perennial human challenge, how can you address the the principality in here without destroying the person? Because it's, it's, you can, one way to get rid of racism is kill racists. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, the question is, can you save the racist from racism? And this is, mm. I mean, this is, these are old, yeah. old yeah. questions and conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at totalitarian governments, you know, they, they constantly were dealing with this, but it's just almost always easier rather than to deal with something that's inside a human being to get rid of the human being. Yeah. And, and to force that individual human being to be an embodiment wholly of that thing. And then symbolically use that person to excise all, excise all the, all that racism, let's say from the community. That's right. If you can pin it all on one person. That's right. That's right. But that's not that efficient. No. Or I guess that you still have racism, but you get a brief respite from it in your feelings or in your imagination or. Well, to go back to where you started this, if you're, if you're gaining your, if as a civilization, as a group, you're gaining your energy by being oppositional. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and Orwell dealt with this in, in 1984. You always have to have an enemy. Yeah. And you always have to find someone who, you always have to find the enemy without and the enemy within. Because if that's what your organ, is that, if that's what your movement is driving its energy from, once you lose that enemy, You've now lost your reason for being and you've lost what all of the thing, all of the energy that is giving you loyalty, mm-hmm. support, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things. And, and we've seen this, you know, the March of Dimes very famously, they were going to fight polio. Mm. Then they beat polio. Yeah. What do you do with the March of Dimes? Uh, make a wish foundation. <laughs> you start fighting other childhood diseases. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because you just keep marching. You just keep marching. And, and this is what we see again and again. Yeah. The success can be the worst thing to happen to a movement. Uh, a, a particular type of movement then that then can, doesn't reformulate itself as a movement once it gains success or well, I mean, certain I mean, things are set up to be able, I guess in the foundation, if you think of the movement as what happens if we get this goal, then what, you know, right. I guess with feminism, is it ultimate egalitarianism or Will it always only ever be for this one group to gain more? Well, and this is where with a bunch of these movements like feminism, like racism, you've got challenges that in a sense, because you, you, okay. So maybe your goal as a feminist movement is to have, let's say, uh, pay equality, something like that. Yeah. Okay. The difficulty is that that's too complex of a thing to, actually succeed at and so it's something you can always be striving towards. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and and we see that happening uh, and kind of almost blindly i mean I, I i i already hear brett weinstein in my head because now he's in my head because that's what happened to me <laughs> I got this little upgrade of brett weinstein but it, it's almost like the the movements that persist are the ones that figure out that one cause that is perpetual that's right in a way that's right like almost blindly that's right that's right and so for example calvinism which is the tradition that i come mm. out of mm. um total depravity is a is a doctrinal feature of calvinism and so what, I was, what's total depravity? Total depravity means that I will never, as long as I live, er- eradicate sin from my life. Okay. Now that's fairly handy because it's handy in a number of ways. Hmm. One of which, so I was doing a conversation with the YouTuber, Mr. Reagan, when I was in Southern California and he 
He was trying to establish my conservative credentials, of which I have very few. <laughs> and and one of the things he asked me was, are you a racist? And I said, yes. And he didn't quite know what to say uh -huh. because, well, and I said, well, I'm a Calvinist. And so I believe that I am a racist mm. and a bigot. And yeah. in fact, okay. I, per the Heidelberg Catechism, have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Mm. This is part of my doctrinal package. So I will never actually arrive at any of these goals as long as I live. Of pure non-racism. Of pure non-racism, of pure non-sexism, okay. as not having bias against, and that's just a tiny part of it. I will never love my wife as I should. I will never love my children as I should. I will always fall short. Yeah. I was, I was having a, um, an, uh, a conversation with a, with a listserv and one of the guys who actually started following, following me with Jordan Peterson, found his way into the listserv, a little small, little church wonky listserv. And he's an atheist and he's been going to church. And for a lot of these atheists, the confession that he's actually been going to church is you lose status with your atheist oh, friends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. And so he was talking to this person and one of his friends said, well, but I can't go because she had grown up in a church. I could never go to a church because I can't stand having people tell me that they're a sinner. And actually, this person was thinking about it, but, and Jordan Peterson's ideas about, you know, set a goal. And are you actually achieving the potential that you have? Or are you falling, falling short? And if you sit down and you think about your life and you think, well, I kind of, you mm -hmm. know, kind of wasted a lot of time yesterday and I've blown a lot of money on senseless things. And okay. no, I'm not striving. I'm always falling short. And for this individual, he now has a certain understanding of what Christianity means okay. by sin. Yeah. And so you're always following, you're always falling short. Well, so church, part of the reason that I watched all of these other conversations about racism and sexism and LGBT stuff, I was watching those conversations and I was thinking, this is just like Calvinism. And that's why I found James Lindsay, because this is just like Calvinism. Yeah. Except that with a, with Christianity and a tradition like Calvinism, all of this stuff has, in a sense, matured, including all of the dodges. So you can actually, it actually can become a dodge to say, I am totally depraved. I will never measure up. Therefore, I'll settle. Settle with what? Settle with, uh, I'll be a bigot. I'll be sexist. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And, and then you can sort of invert the conversation. And for a while, I was having conversations with someone who was just kept hammering at some of these points. And so I just, I just put, I just signed my name, Paul Vanderclay, bigot. And this began to annoy this person because he says, well, you're not a bigot. I said, no, I really am. Mm -hmm. But, but you're not the kind of bigot that I want this movement to fight. And he had specific ideas about how other people should change their mind in order for them not to be bigots. Okay. But the problem with that is it's a never ending game. Oh, okay. there will always be another, there will always be another layer of bigotry. There'll always be another layer of bias. Okay. So there's this, there's this narrow path between, uh, just calling the whole thing off in either direction. Right. Saying, okay, I'm just going to completely devote myself to 
eradicating myself because I'm full of sin and therefore I deprave myself of life because my life is full of depravity or just completely saying, well, I'm full of sin, so it doesn't matter. I'm scot-free. Like, right. like what's the point? So, right. so with these woke religions and then this ancient, well, this older religion, like what, what do you think is the saving grace in something like the church or Christianity or, or a religion that, that comes out the other end of generations affecting good in the world? Like what is, what is that that can accept that that guilt part of the package, and what do they tack on top of that that makes it more complete or whole or healthy? I, I think I think part I, I, you know when I watched your conversation with James Lindsay, I thought you guys really touched on it because here's James Lindsay noted that for some of the for some of the individuals they weren't allowed to deconstruct oppression or racism. They give themselves an island. That's right. That's right. That island, if you look at this in terms of religious terms, that island is an idol. And we would call that technically an idol because they are using it as their god. That then becomes the thing which organizes the hierarchy. Exactly, yeah. The reason Christianity and other religions, but Christianity in particular, began talking about idolatry is that it recognized something that's actually connected with the Sermon on the Mount. God in the Sermon on the Mount says, you may not represent me by anything within the created order. Wait, is this the Mount Sinai? This or? is Mount Sinai. Okay. It's the third so commandment. Not, you it, shall have no other gods before well, me. You, you said the Sermon on the Mount, but this, oh, did I? this I, is the I, previous I Sermon on the Mount. My wife my wife always says, you should not be on YouTube. You always say the wrong thing. <laughs> no, um, but no, the, the Ten Commandments. Okay, yeah. Because what God says is that you may not take anything within creation and make that God. If you do, even in your own creation, that's right. Your mental, exactly. If you do that, well, if I do that, what? Well, you violate the commandment. What does that mean? Yeah, it means that life starts breaking down. Hmm. It doesn't get stuck. It starts breaking down. Well, it will. It it breaks down because it gets stuck. Okay. Okay. So so you so and Tim Keller actually, I moved the book about this. Um, this book, Counterfeit Gods. Plug for Tim Keller. Um. My office is such a mess because I throw things places. Um, and he can testify how messy my office is. It's a big mess. <laughs> um, but we are wearing pants. So <laughs> we're wearing short pants. Okay, yeah. um, what happens if you take something within the created order and put it at the top of your hierarchy is that you can't actually... I don't think you can actually function within a hierarchy because things will get stuck. So... I, I was talking, I was telling you a story about in Riverside Church in New York City, where a very prominent and successful woman pastor did not have her contact renewed, contract renewed. She was complaining about sexual harassment. The New York Times and the Peace said, how could this, basically said, how could this happen in a church where leaders walked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah. So sexual harassment thing was equated with the fight against... It, fight against racism. Racism, yeah. Even though Dr. King had some real issues... With sexual harassment. I mean, he cheated on his wife. You know, some of the things that, that David Garrow has found recently. So there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. But it imagines that there's this implicit hierarchy that if you're woke, you'll be anti-racist. You'll, you know, be fine. with All of these things come together. And so what happens in this situation when you take any certain element and you make it sacred, mm-hmm. you turn it into an island, you actually will not be able to function as a community because what happens when your 
your your feminist is a racist because yeah. they're not the same thing. And it's actually in Jordan Peterson's first um, biblical, when he did his biblical talks, he goes into the fact that one of the things that Christianity did and said right off the bat was that the emperor or the king, and this gets into interchurch religious things with respect to the Pope, yeah. no living person or even dead person, see Jesus isn't dead in Christianity, can be at the top of your hierarchy. Well, God is always a part of it, which is why I leave in my horrible mess here, why I have a dollar bill. Okay. Because on the dollar bill, the I is above the pyramid. Okay. And it's the, always separate. And why? Because once you have the thing at the top of your hierarchy within the natural order, mm -hmm. you cannot actually navigate and manage the other issues you are going to come about. So you need something outside of the system, on top of the system, that affords you to step out of the system, or even project yourself, or even just hope, or even just like send your tendrils out there, your intuition, something that's not even formed, just a right. reaching right. out of the system in order to reorganize and refresh and, and re-enliven right. the system. And you can see this working out, for example, the pedophile priest scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, as if we're not going to get in enough trouble for this video. Um, <laughs> the pedophile priest scandal hits the Roman Catholic Church in a particular way because their hierarchy is the church. You can have Protestants that are abusing children, but the Bible can't abuse a child. Yeah. Well, you can charge the Bible with giving ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the Bible itself can't. But even in Protestant Christianity, the Bible isn't God. The yeah, Bible isn't is, holy. Yeah. Even that is different from it. So yeah. in Christianity, you set the top of your hierarchy above anything in the natural order. Okay. So this is the tricky part. And this is a little bit meta, but I've seen it happen. What happens when God becomes the idea of God, no longer God itself, but the idea of God, which is a natural thing, which is something that human beings have made and can pass around. What, when that, what happens when that becomes the, is there not a false God that is called God and, and, and tastes and looks and acts just like God is, uh, but just as the representation. There are all the time. Yeah. Every single person has an imagination of who God is and Christian theology says all of those imaginations are also tinged with sin and depravity and how do you how do you ever escape that you can never escape so it. you never escape it but then how do you act within it in a, a productive manner and, and i guess productive or, or generative or healthy i'm still trying to i'm still trying to give a name to the right. state of the system that is the is at the top, top it of helps you navigate towards it but you never reach it and that's why yeah. it's fundamentally not utopian uh, so god is a direction not a place or heaven is a is, is a is, is you wouldn't say it's about. not a place, but it is in fact a direction. That's where you get your telos. Yeah, that's where okay. that's where you navigate towards, and that's why if you, that's why you can continue improving the system. Yeah, because you never actually will arrive. But is there not something real inside of the system, inside of the inside of the religion that that makes it real to people? Is there not? Is there not room for an experience of God, like an ecstatic ecstatic experience or a, a mystic experience, and is it possible to have a church without that kind of experience or is it just pointed to? No, I, th well, so God shows up in the book of Isaiah in the temple and Isaiah is there 
in Isaiah chapter 6, and the seraphim that are around God, mm. they shout out, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. There you have the two ideas. Holy, holy, holy is, to say something is holy is it is separate. Yeah, separate, and in, separate, separate. Right, so it's, mm. in Hebrew, three times is the most separate. So a deep hole, a hole is deep, deep, the deepest imaginable hole is deep, deep, deep. Okay. That's how Hebrew works. Huh. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yeah. Okay. So God is, you'll never reach him. Yeah. Okay. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, so he's reached down. Right. He's always reached He's reaching. both transcendent. Yeah. And he's imminent. Okay. And so you can experience God, but your experience of God can never exhaust yeah. or okay. contain. Yeah. So it can be tasted, but not colonized. And and I asked that to go back to the original question about the narrative and the narrative of Christianity or the narrative of community. Is there, is there not something that 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 needs to be alive inside that narrative? That, and how do you, how do you foster a, a living experience of of the holy or or of the holy, 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 and the individual in the congregate. If and is it not important for somebody to feel the reality of God in order to go through all the motions of a system that puts God so far above you and so so much around you? Like, is there not need to be a, a direct experience? And how does one? And I guess I'm because I'm, I'm bringing it into where I see Verveki going with with uh, mindfulness. Or there has to be a practice. The narrative's not enough. The system's not enough. We need some sort of practice. Is there that? In Christianity, and where is it? Yeah, it's, it's, there very much is. So, holy, holy, holy. So there's the top. The whole earth is full of his glory. You can, you can bump into God all over the place. You go to Yosemite National Park. You go and walk into Yosemite Valley and, oh, well, there's God's glory. Okay. God's glory. God litters the world with his glory. <laughs> you can find his glory in beer. You can find his glory in a good piece of cake. You can find yeah. his glory in a flower. You can find his glory everywhere. You can, you can have that, you can have that experience and that sense of experience. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, how do you respond to glory? And, and this gets this in, and I think glory is a nice way into it because well, let's, let's imagine, I've used this illustration before. Let's imagine a baker, a baker, you know, the best baker you can imagine who bakes the best cakes you can imagine. What do we mean by the best cakes? These cakes are filled with glory and they're filled with glory from, you know, the farmer who has planted the best wheat and the dairyman who has made the best milk and the sugar. And so you take all of these things that the Columbian exchange has put together and it all comes together in a piece of cake. And the baker, here's a funny thing about glory. To the degree that the baker tries to own that glory, the glory is diminished. The glory is enhanced, however, when the baker cuts the cake, gives it to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And you glow. Yeah. Okay. Glory shared is glory multiplied. Yeah. Glory grasped hoarded hoarded glory is glory diminished yeah okay and and this is a really funny dynamic hmm. and and so this is part of the reason why christianity says that grace is a gift we receive it with open hands gifts are not taken and what this means is that the kind of transformations so okay so sin so i realize i'm a sinner i realize 
I listen to Jordan Peterson, and I realize I play way too many video games, I look at too much porn, I don't treat women well, I should really marry my girlfriend and have kids. So I got to shape up, all right? So you shape up. And what you realize is that there's more shaping up to do. And, and you keep realizing that you keep following short. Well, what do you do with that? How do you not let that, how do you not let that destroy you? Well, one way is to realize that even the movement to clean your office or to shape up your room, even that is a gift to you. Because if it's not a gift to you, if it's something you achieve, now suddenly I can look down on Vander Clay, the poor slob whose office is a disaster. Yeah. And now suddenly I've diminished glory between us. And so it's always a gift. But yet it's a weird kind of gift that I actually have to take responsibility for and turn myself towards. And yet even in the process of that, just like the best baker in the world, the minute the baker begins to take the wrong kind of pride in that cake, the glory of the cake is diminished. Yeah. And so, and now people ask questions about the hiddenness of God. Well, God is the most humble being in the universe. What do you mean by that? I mean, if God would, if God would show up like, um, if God would show up and brag about how amazing Yosemite Valley is, God would be diminished. <laughs> If you want to know the, you know, an amazing thing for a baker to do would be to, you know, set up his cake in Grand Central Station, just put a little sign, you know, here's some cake, have some, and let people walk up to it. And, and you know, how could I imagine that the best cake I have ever received has been given anonymously to me in a place I would never accept it. So are you saying that, that the appreciation of creation is a form of, uh, of becoming in contact with that, which is God? Though? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then how does one go about refining that or how does one go about diminishing that, which obscures that view? And is that where we get into what ethics are and morality is? And question on what's on top of the hierarchy. Because if you make Yosemite National Valley your God, yeah. you will destroy it. It has to be a gift from something which is above and unattainable. Well, how does that relate to, to the negative things like, like sin or like, let's say, racism again? If okay. you make, if you make race, the God, is there not a way to make race something that is a part of, uh, of, uh, of ending racism or, or like, like the, the, the vanquishing of, of that particular inefficient, disharmonious human behavior from humanity? Is that not a worthy goal and where does it go wrong? Well, racism, you would have to say, is a subset of bias. Not all bias is bad. If you have a bias towards loving your children, loving your children is an expression of bias. It's an appropriate expression of bias. Mm -hmm. um, you love your wife when you, if you get married, you, if you get married, you take this person forsaking all others. That is an expression of bias. Yeah. That is a good expression of bias. And what happens if you say, I am going to banish bias from my life. Well, you find that in strain in Brave New World, where you can never say no to someone's um, um, 
to someone's invitation to you because that would be biased to say no, mm-hmm. but look at everything you lose. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there, and again, if you make anti-bias is going to be my God, first of all, it's going to be a terrible way to live. Second of all, you can't actually live that way and you will destroy humanity. Doing well, what, so. if, what if your job is just to go around and convince a bunch of corporations to give you money so you can teach it? to be anti-bias it's not necessarily <laughs> your god it's it's your trade well and that's a that's a perfectly fine thing to do okay because racism is a problem and people people should learn how to be less racist okay but let's say well, there was i remember dr house so Dr. house was a show television yeah, yeah, yeah. show yeah. um there was a guy who a guy who came into dr house and he was quite angry because he learned that certain drugs were being prescribed to black men and not white men for a particular disease. And Dr. House explained that black men have a certain propensity to certain illnesses because of the certain traits, and so this drug was appropriate to black men. And he claimed that Dr. House was being a racist because he's selling this to black men, and it's obviously got to be inferior to the drug that the white man is taking. Well, this is a case in which bias based on race is actually a pretty good thing because there are illnesses and specific things to specific racial groups that ought to be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. And if you put anti-racism at the top of your hierarchy in exclusion of everything else, you cannot have a drug that addresses illnesses predominantly in the black community. So what about placing what what's at the top of the human hierarchy and in, in, in terms of how do I interact with human beings in the best possible way? What is that? What is the top? What is the, at the top of that? It has to be God. But now God, see, here's the, here's the, this gets tricky again, because you rightly will say, well, what do you mean by God? And then I'm going to answer you with the best definition that perhaps I could pull out in this moment, okay. but it will be deficient. Okay. All right. But but again, if you put God at the top of the hierarchy, at least you always have that space. That well, Paul had this idea of God, but Paul's idea of God really is deficient. I've got this better idea of God, which actually functions better, because if you take anything in creation and you put it at the top of your hierarchy, you're going to have a problem, like Doctor House had with that one black patient. Okay, but what what about how I interact with somebody? who is completely different than me. How does, how does having God at the top of that hierarchy, how does that functionally work in if my someone, interaction at like a coffee shop or, or just driving down the road and get home? Well, well, this is, this is where, this is where I think listening to Jordan Peterson and reading someone like Jared Diamond is helpful because if you actually encountered someone who was completely different from you, you two would probably try to kill each other because that's what human beings actually did for a long time isn't that what organisms do i guess that's, that's exactly what organisms organisms do. that are similar enough to hate everything different about each other well if you so if you went down to one of these tribes i don't know if there's any left in some jungle somewhere yeah. anyone not of the tribe mm-hmm. was instantly attacked and it's actually a an accomplishment of culture if you can pause Killing. Well, think about it. Say North American Indians. What would have been the smartest thing they could have done? The minute anybody showed up, any white man showed up in a boat, is kill them. (laughs) Don't let them near. Why? We don't know. Well, there's these little things called germs and Mm. smallpox and influenza. And well, that just sounds crazy woo woo. You know, kill them. And then the truth is what happens, say, in a Christian scheme is that, well, Jesus comes along and says, 
you know, here are the two rules. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, okay. So you meet someone and, well, there's rule number two. You've got to love them. Okay. Well, then you have to figure out what love means. Okay, yeah. They, that's an interesting inversion because you brought up the Isaiah part that put God holy, holy, holy. Right. And then the glory manifest. And, and right. then Jesus collapsed down, collapses that into this thing called love. It's yes. no, and that seems to be, maybe I'm wrong, it seems to be the opposite of separation. Yes. But, and what, how, how does love clean and how does love, uh, how does love survive that, that leap of the, of that, that, um, purely transcendent thing from the purely created thing? You can jump to John three sixteen. God so loved the world. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about John and the word world is that in the gospel of John, world is almost always a negative thing. Mm. The world is, you're worldly. Yeah, exactly. That sense of it. God so loves the world that he sends his son, sends his one son to what? To die. That's what love is. Okay. So that's how, that's how division is overcome. Jesus comes and is killed by the people who receive him mm -hmm. and then is raised again. Mm-hmm. So, because that, that that rhymes with Abraham's story about um, the courage of Abraham to be told to do this completely outlandish thing, which probably wasn't that outlandish because people were killing their kids all the time back then. It's just kind of part of their religion then. But he was told to kill that one begotten son of him, his own, and and then that 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 was mitigated in a different way than than there was no resurrection there. I guess right. There was this swapping out. There was right. this. Uh, Kind of magic trick, but right. There's a, and that, in fact, was ritualized then mm -hmm. in Hebrew sacrifice, where once a year the head of the household would come and present the animal at the temple, place his hands on it. In a sense, all the sin gets transferred into the animal, and the animal gets killed instead of the family. Okay, so what what do you mean sin then? Well, is all sin, of the is shortcomings. Sin, is sin the opposite of love? Or they're in a completely different relationship than opposite. Sin is not Satan. No. Nope. Right? Sin is missing the mark. Sin is falling short. Sin is, let's say, well, this gets complicated. Um, when any of us were born, our parents had some ideas about what they wanted us to be. Yeah. And so in that scheme, sin is the difference between what we've achieved and what our hopes would be. Okay. Now our parents are imperfect, but in terms of sin is the potential we have never realized in God's eyes. And so love is what is used to basically handle sin. Say, well, Ben ah, hasn't quite reached our yeah. expectations, but we love him. Yeah. But the difficulty is, okay, what in terms of the missing has to be compensated for in another way for the family to actually be together. And that's where sacrifice will come through. It, that, the way that you just described that really reminds me of how you're describing, like there's always a separation between the head, the top of the hierarchy and, and the hierarchy, right? Or the, there's that, that having that God, uh, it seems like there's that, 
that sin is the same exact distance between God and the system. Yep. And so it, it, it's this weird trap again to have this adversary that is built into the system where the system can, if the system ever achieved God, it would stop being the system in a way. It seems like if, if we ever become free of sin, we would stop being, we would stop participating in this. The story yeah. as we know it would end. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens in the Bible. And, and that's we don't a good know thing? what, that's a good thing. We don't know. It, it is a good thing. It's, it showed to be a good thing <laughs> in the sense of every tear to be, you know, there, Life doesn't end, but this, this, the gap, this gap ends. Okay. What we can't conceive of is what and who we would be without it. Yeah. We, we can't conceive of that. But if that gap ends, I guess, I guess every, every decided attempt on our part to bridge that gap ends in failure. Yes. That's utopianism. Yes. Trying to bring about the end of, the, of yes. history. Yes. And so the message of the Bible mm -hmm. is in a sense that that gap will end and it will be something that God does. Because when we do it, oh. we bring, <laughs> actually, many of our problems are failed utopian solutions. Yeah. And how does, how does sacrifice, how does, how does slaughtering something important or letting go of something important whether, where, whether it is a meal by fasting or whether it is a relationship or, or anything, how, how does that, um, provide some sort of traction in, in appeasing God or, or bringing us closer to God or, or not without bridging that gap on our own? It seems like there's some sort of participation of the will towards God embodied in sacrifice that seems to be safe from that utopian. I am ending the world, but there's still a participation. I, I'm, 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 I'm making, I'm cutting, I'm killing something here or yeah. I'm destroying something. Well, the need for sacrifice, I think, can be seen in, in the story of the prodigal son. So you have an older brother and a younger brother. The younger brother says to the father, I want to cash in now. Everybody in the Jewish village would have beat the son to death here. You know, that's what, that's what a son deserves for making such an outrageous statement. But the father doesn't do this. He, in fact, does what the town would imagine to be the most horrible thing to, in fact, give the son a third of the rich man's goods. He takes it into a far off country, squanders it, begins to realize, oh, crap, my life is a mess. What can I do? And this is where I differ from a lot of tellings of this story, because when he's off, off far off in the field feeding the pigs, he has a little speech that he develops. And it's exactly the speech from the book of Exodus that Pharaoh says. I'm going to go to my father because he's a dupe and I'm going to say, Oh, dad, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the father basically won't even, won't even listen to the kid's speech, throws his robe around him because the village elders are going to bar him, throws his robe around him, puts sandals on, puts a ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf and says, okay, mm. where's the sacrifice in that story? Who has paid the sacrifice for that rebellious son? The father. The father has paid it, but someone else has also taken a hit. And that's the older brother. Because the story doesn't stop when the father welcomes the younger son. The story continues because, and the story is set up amazingly well, because the older brother is far off in the field. And the father goes out to meet the older brother who's far off in the field 
And the older brother says, basically, screw you. You know, I don't agree with what you've done to that, that asshole. He deserves, you know, he does not, I deserve far more than him because I've done this myself. Mm -hmm. And the father says, you know, everything that I have is yours. And the older son's kind of like, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Can't you see that your brother, your son is, your brother is alive and we should celebrate. Okay. So where does the sacrifice come from? Well, so what happens with the Israelites make lots of sacrifices. The book of Hebrews says, you know, they made lots of sacrifices. None of these sacrifices were sufficient. Yeah. What sacrifice was sufficient to welcome the younger brother? The younger brother couldn't pay that sacrifice. He didn't have anything. He had just squandered it all. Um, the older brother couldn't present that sacrifice because he would have to do what the younger brother did in order to have the stuff to give the sacrifice. Who is the only one that can actually pay the sacrifice to restore the younger brother? Mm-hmm. It's the father. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, the father, pays the sacrifice. Okay. So now where does sacrifice come in? Well, misery, deliverance, gratitude. Our sacrifices are expressions of gratitude in kind in response to the sacrifice paid by the Father for our reconciliation. This is an interesting thing um, because how do you have a how do you have a society working together? One way is to have an enemy. Another way is to have a narrative. But you said that the narrative usually includes an enemy. Includes an enemy, but doesn't make the enemy the be-all, end-all of the entire narrative. Yes. There has to be something beyond the enemy that the narrative is hoping for. Hmm. The, um, you know, the... Again, something that's outside. Something that... something. Well, I think this gets to the point of where you were going. It has to be inside enough so that it can be tasted, but it has to be also outside so that it's not exhausted by yeah. the tasting. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't just dissolve on the top. The, the dragon in the Hobbit, the goal of the the goal of the Hobbit is that the dwarves will once again have hmm. their home in Erebor. The dragon is an obstacle to that, but the dragon also is that which will test, you know, the characters mm-hmm. and reveal their potential and whether they will live up to the potential. So Bilbo Bilbo would never become Bilbo without the dragon. Mm-hmm. The dragon has to be a part of Bilbo becoming who he can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we see that in stories all the time. The best stories are always structured that way. Where the where the enemy isn't the goal, or the enemy isn't the god. Right. In a right. Way. And even overcoming the enemy alone doesn't exhaust that which the story desires and seeks after. There's something, there's something that 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 seems dead to me about Robin D'Angelo's theology, and I don't know how to put it. But when she talks about the ways in which, uh, well, one thing I don't like is that she reduces everybody into their race, um, with the goal of, I guess, liberating us from race in the end or racism. But um, the way that she pits one in this inter- eternal struggle against society's lack of of love for this other group or society's insistent oppression of this other group. It seems like it has all the trappings of a religion, but it doesn't seem it's, it seems incomplete somehow. And, and even, even the, the conversation that I had with James Lindsay, we didn't get into this, but 
it seems like he, he's been working a lot on the religious imagination or re religious psychology and showing how it pops up here and there. I don't think that that's a structure that we can get away from. Um, one, it's, it's, it's a structure that's going to pop up no matter what, but because it, for whatever reason, but, but how do we build something that takes advantage of those in a, in a positive way, all those religious trappings. And it seems like social justice as a religion is an incomplete religion. Yeah. What would separate Christianity? And I, I've asked you this several times now, what, what separates Christianity from a dead story? What, what is it about the, the narrative of Christianity that even if it does trap everybody in it by embracing everybody, it gives everybody a full life within that, that context, that narrative. Well, I, in terms of what you just said at the end there, I think that touches on why um, why Robin D'Angelo's theology is insufficient. Because merely overcoming racism does not mean a full life. And so what you will see in, in examples like this, which is you have an idol, which is, let's say, anti-racism, very quickly what they have to do is scale it up and try to have a <clears throat> try to have an eschatology, a final glorious state that is beyond anti-racism. And you can see this, you know, for a number of years ago, I started following everyday feminism because I, I was fascinated by what they were doing, and then I found this video where this woman basically explains, well, we use the word feminism, but what we really mean is, and then she didn't have very good words to use, but I could very easily translate, oh, you mean the kingdom of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You are trying to arrive at the kingdom of God, yeah. and you're using anti, you're using feminism to arrive there at the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah. The only difficulty is that, for many, many people, let's, let's imagine an aspect like ten-fingeredness. Okay. Let's imagine that our desire is to eradicate any bias against people with less than ten fingers. Yeah. And you're going to establish an entire religion around this. Well, there isn't really a terrible history of bias against people with fewer than ten fingers, which, you know, anti-racism has. But the yeah, point yeah, is, yeah, yeah. your story itself is way too small yeah. to actually encapsulate everything that human beings know yeah. we are interested in. Okay. And so, that's part of the problem. And, and so, so the trick out of that would be something that would be intersectionality, intersectionality, where, where you, feminism links up with anti-racism links up to, I guess, indigenous rights, links up with environmental rights, I guess, too, um, though that's even a completely other order, and, like, links up with communism right, right. And, and poor people's rights and then immigration rights. So you have this, we're going to eventually fill out, we're going to build a, a full utopia by bringing all the all the all the causes together and it really brings up the lord of the rings it's like <laughs> like there's this super ring that we're positing where where all these other in intersectional rings will e eventually bow down before this utopia but but it, it seems like one way of of uh of branching out of that little tiny island is to go into all these other causes and then have a i guess the pro progressive platform or a caucus of causes right but is that is that sufficient? Is that the way to to end to to arrive at heaven, or is it still is there something buried in that that that's causing it not to reach its goal? Well, there, there's two problems. One problem is their 
purview of human life is way too small and their hierarchy is way too constricted. Okay. Because they've even taken... Even beyond the cause. Even, even beyond, beyond the one cause. cause right. Like, even a multiple cause right. thing. It's still It's still... And, and so what you find in... I mean, Jordan Peterson says that ideologies are crippled religions. And and what I would argue, sort of like Verveke does, is that... So, so John Verveke, as he was getting into these later things, he notes that what happens sort of as Christianity is, is crumbling in the West... People try new things to replace it. Mm-hmm. So communism comes about, mm-hmm. capitalism comes about, and all these things come about to try to to replace Christianity, and they really don't work. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason they don't work is that they're way too new. So even if you look at, say, a religion like Buddhism, mm-hmm. Buddhism, you know, goes all the way down and says, well, what's our problem? Well, suffering is our problem. Yeah. And so... A universal concept. That's a much, that's a, you can, that's a much bigger concept than all of these other little issues that woke people yeah, are looking okay. at. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, so then, so that's the one problem, the problem of purview, that they're not, they're, they're not recognizing all of the problems of humanity and, and how they're pitching it is just way too yeah. small yeah. for okay. all the problems yeah. that we have. Yeah. And in fact, most of these problems are limited to a particular strain of, they're projecting it out into the world, but go to other places in the world and explain it to them, and they'll look at you like... Micro what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it just makes no sense. I mean, it barely it barely leaves the Twitter sphere. I mean, it, it yeah, doesn't... Yeah. So you got the problem of purview. Yeah. The second problem you have is capacity to fix it, and which for me, as I watch these movements invade the church, I very much see this as a different gospel hmm. because, okay, so I'm, so I'm, I'm racist. I'm a Calvinist. I say, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. Uh, what's your solution to my racism? Well, you have to own your privilege and own your racism. Listen, okay. Yeah. I did that because, in fact, Very I not good. only own my bigotry, I own everything. Okay. It's like when you're playing a kid and you, I've got this invisible ev- against everything shield. That's yeah, what yeah, Calvinism yeah, yeah. says. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally depraved. So keep going. <laughs> yeah. So listen to me. Okay. And then what you say to me is because of your whiteness, you can never actually know how to do this right. Okay, so why should I spend time listening to you? Because you're forced to, because you, you signed up to this implicit bias training, so you're there anyways. Well, I'll probably... I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no solution yeah, yeah. to racism in their world, and there's not actually a God who can grant grace. And this also, our God who can grant forgiveness, or God who can bring reconciliation. So... So there's a problem of purview and there's a problem of insufficient remedy. Okay. Can there be a secular form of grace then? That's something that communism failed at grasping. Like, can there be a a theology, a a theology that, that works, a secular theology that works without a dispensation or something from beyond the human will? I've seen people try dispensation. So I know the story. There was a, a young woman, very idealistic woman who, um, was working with a group of people, and they decided they wanted to throw a Hawaiian-themed party. Okay. And this person goes to a a university and thought that this was cultural appropriation because none of her co-workers were Hawaiian. Yeah. 
And so how can you find sanction to throw a Hawaiian-themed party? Find a Hawaiian person to grant you permission to throw this Hawaiian-themed party. And I heard this, and I said, well, what happens if another Hawaiian person says, no, I object, you're appropriating my culture? Who is going to... Who is going to say which is more Hawaiian to gain sanction for this Hawaiian-themed party? Can we have a party with pineapple that doesn't have a Hawaiian theme? I mean, I mean, this gets crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> and so what I don't see this this shows the deficiency of their universe because Bell Hooks can grant, you know, absolution. Um you know, who is the authority in the hierarchy that can say it's okay? Well, you're always going to find somebody else who's, who's trying to climb the top and yeah. is, and the way they can gain status is by saying, Bell Hook said that wasn't racism, but I say it is. Yeah. And these things will go on forever. Yeah. And again, you don't have something above the system that will finally in the eschaton. No. Oh, no. Okay. No, not the end. Practice but, judgment. But you, you, you keep on getting a taller and taller system, right? Until it completely collapses, right. but right. And, or that, breaks down just that into will, warfare. It, it seems like it brings to to mind Nietzsche's will to power. Like the will to power is itself the manifestation of, of transcendence. Is that I'm going to try to dominate the system, and and it, it, he even talks about like like the resentment as as a way right. of of controlling the narrative and stuff. So is there is again is there a possibility? Or is the function of theology is to put into a variety of terms, be story or, or, or theory, uh, a, a aspect of something that is supernatural, that's grace, that, that comes from outside of the system, that comes from outside of my experience, that then enters into my experience and, and saves me or, or, or bridges that gap between me and that which I cannot bridge without destruction, b- right. without destroying myself. Right. And how, how does, how does, how does grace, so I, I just wonder if, if, how do you sell grace to people who say there's no God? Well, people, <laughs> I, well, for one thing, I don't sell grace. <laughs> oh, no? Um, on discount? <laughs> it, by definition, it's free. Um, the What I often find with people is that... Okay, so what does theology do? Theology, Christian theology, in the sense of a a fully manifest world religion, has within it most or all of the things that a human being needs to, as the hypercatechism says, live and die happily. Mm. And when it says that, it doesn't mean happy. It means blessedly in a full, rich sense. And, and to have that, there are certain aspects of your theology that have to manifest. There needs to be an end state. Um, so the question that you might ask is, when will racism finally be put to rest. Mm-hmm. The difficulty that you have in a secular world is the container of a secular world itself already has a story. And the story is human beings do stuff until the heat death of the universe and then everything that has been, you know, that you have known goes away. Mm-hmm. 
that then impacts how we live our individual stories in different ways. And so what happens with other religions is that they they look for ways out of some of these dead ends. Mm. And and I think part of what we've seen in contemporary culture, what we've seen in terms of the meaning crisis, the work of John Verveke and Jordan Peterson, uh, Viktor Frankl, many others, really in, in many ways the whole... 20th century has been a quest for this, which is, is there any hope beyond death? Mm -hmm. And death isn't just physical death, it scales all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Um, And in a way, your question about grace is, grace is the answer that there is hope. And it comes from outside the system. Is it not also an opening of the system... uh, of preparing a, a space inside the system for that to happen for for the transcendence of the system to happen you can't you can't know it if it doesn't somehow also get manifest within the system yeah and that's why that's why every mother who sacrifices for the welfare of her child you know reveals god to the world yeah so god is there how do you pay attention to that how do you pay attention to God? How do you listen for grace or, or glory or, or what? There's, I, I, there are many ways people do it all the time, and even if they don't know it. I think every time... Augustine had this idea that basically... Not just Augustine, but... So the whole earth is full of his glory. In a sense, God clothes himself with the universe. And so when you walk into Yosemite Valley... There it is. And people will, in fact, seek it. I'm reading a really interesting book right now on basically uh, the age of addiction where, mm. and he's going through the history of, of pleasure. I read a really interesting book, 1493, talks about the Columbian Exchange. Basically, hmm. the eastern seaboard got colonized in the south partly because nicotine and tobacco is such a potent drug. I mean, without that, we don't know that the lower colonies ever would have gotten started mm. without they were growing drugs and the world was hooked on tobacco. Yeah. That's what happened. Well, sugar and tea, caffeine, yeah. All all yeah. Around, all along. So, mm. is there glory in nicotine? Yeah, probably. Is there glory in tobacco? Yeah, probably. There's in fact glory all over the place. Now, what's the dicks? What's the difference between enjoying a nice beer and being an alcoholic? Two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a difference that we know, but to actually, you can describe it, but in mm. a sense, we we stand before it. With a little bit of awe and terror. But right there is, in a sense, the difference between salvation and destruction in some ways. Because there's glory in that beer. Yeah. But what happens when, um, hmm. what, what is, what happens in addiction when the beer, the glory of the beer becomes your terror? Yeah. I mean, yeah. someone sat in that. I have a picture of a guy who used to sit right in that chair. And my, I used to clean my office every week back in those days. I gave that up years ago. But he took a, he was an alcoholic who was homeless, lived across the street. He just came into my office one day because almost people know they can come here and sit and talk to me, which is usually what they want to do. And he just 
plop the can of beer right on my desk and says, my life is in that can. Uh-huh. Others is God. Uh-huh. And that's the story of an idol. Uh-huh. And that's the story of glory. There's enough glory in beer that it could capture him, but it's his twisted relationship with glory that was destroying his life. And in fact, like many homeless people, he got hit with a car crossing Florin Road one day, and he went to the hospital, and they patched up his hip, and they let him out, and I used to watch him sleeping in the weeds in the bushes in the church cross street, making his way around the neighborhood in a walker with broken hips. Huh. And it's like, this is this is a um, this is a story. This is a story that reveals a lot of the world. This is humanity and our relationship with glory. So you find glory all over the place. And glory is, in a sense, something that, you know, pleasure is, is in a sense, a navigator for you towards God. That sounds weird Mm. because you would think, no. It's very hedonistic in a way. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a Calvinist preacher, a celebrity preacher named John Piper who has worked that vein pretty. Of course he'd be a celebrity. Yeah. (laughs) Peddling that. Christian hedonism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why, why pedal? What you can't sell grace anyways, but you can sell like feeling good about that second beer. (laughs) Well, but it, but it's, but he's not, he's actually not a prosperity preacher, but he makes the point that. You know, God is most satisfied when you are most satisfied Mm. in God. And part of the reason, part of the reason religion has been probably the original, um, drug for human beings Mm -hmm. is exactly this. There's so much pleasure that can be derived in religion. And it's so, um, I mean, it's, it's a distillation and an arrangement of pleasures. I yes. mean, if you just look at the Catholic Church, and, and I don't mean this derogatorily, because I, when I go at least to Europe and I visit those cathedrals, I can feel the, the worship in there. But they have all, they, they meet and they interact with all of the senses. That's right. That's right. The, one of the most, um, one of the most effective evangelism strategies in the United States today are prisons. Hmm. People go into prisons and take away you know, they're going to have to smuggle drugs and they're going to have to decide to have sex with, you know, whether or not, you know, they'll be gay for the stay, uh, whatever. If they're going to get pleasure in prison, how come so many people go into prison and come out religious? Why? It's because they found the pleasure in it when all other pleasures were denied them. They found the pleasures in religion. Yeah. And what, what do you think those pleasures are then? They're self-discipline. That's part of it. There's pleasure in self-discipline. There's pleasure in insight. There's pleasure. I mean, look at the, look at the monks, the, the, um, Mm. even the, the desert fathers who in the early Christian period, you know, would go out into the desert and starve themselves. Yeah. They did it for pleasure. Yeah. And you say, well, what kind of weird pleasure is that? Well, you you haven't fasted for three months. (laughs) Starts racking up. It's, there's, there's a lot people pursue religion for the pleasure of it. Okay. But there, there's, it seems like there's something different that you're pointing to. You're, you're pointing beyond just pleasure, but you're yes. using pleasure. You're pointing beyond even glory, but you're using glory. And I wonder if there's been moments in your life where, uh, Verveke's touched on this, um, like these super conscious moments that he's yes. had in, in meditation or something. Is, or, and, and if, have you ever experienced something that, that's beyond words that, that you, you've felt a greater glory or a greater plane of existence or however you, however you say that. And then when you come back, how is that 
affected you or how has that changed you and has, has it made the gospel more real to you yes all and then that happens regularly it happens in christian worship happens in prayer happens when i make videos hmm. i mean part of the reason i make videos i've kind of paused conversations because they're taking so much time because when i make my own videos you know insight is is part of pleasure and 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 that's a religious experience um, the guy who they made the movie Chariots of Fire about, he ran in this weird way. It's shown only a couple times in the movie. He had his head back and his, his mouth open and people were like, why did he run that way? He, he said, you know, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Hmm. That's why he ran. Hmm. And so my, my world is, my world is full of pleasure. And even when, hmm. you know, I mentioned, I talked about Daniel, who's out of prison and back in the neighborhood and, you know, just sitting down with Daniel and watching the, the strange manifest hilarities of of his incredibly sad situation there's even pleasure in that in in seeing how these things come together um you know some pleasures part of what happens in a life of religious practice is that you 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 find these pleasures more and more regularly and more and more easily. Hmm. You see them all over the place. You see God's glory. Um, hmm. You know, so so we had a meetup last night. And at the end of the meetup, we have this little routine that we usually do. We take a picture at the end of it, which kind of gets people out of the circle. And then they can kind of break up into little groups. And I looked up and people were all having these little conversations all around the room. And I just had a vision of God's glory where all these people are. And, and you might say, well, you know, what kind of glory is that? I, I see it as an amazing thing where people are having meaningful conversations and, um, and enjoying it. And I've seen over the long haul, this has brought really good things into people's lives. Many of them atheists that are incredibly surprised they'd be doing this with a Christian minister in a Christian church. Yeah, yeah. But I see God's glory in that. And um, it's all over the place. So the, I guess that there is a, a solution to the hobbled religion of social justice. Is that Peterson's term? A ideology is a hobbled a crippled religion. religion. Crippled, yeah. Hobbled crippled. religion. Um, Maybe crippled is politically incorrect. I have to find another word. Hobbled. We're on. We're not on a, a disabled college. religion. <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, a religion of dis disability is the proper term. Disability. <laughs> um, I I liked what you said about the 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 conception of life as mirrored in what they're trying to rid life of or what they're fighting uh, is so small. Like, and and I really felt that too in these privilege workshops. Um, where we would just have to talk. I, when I first entered into the privilege workshop world at Evergreen State College, and we'd have to like play this game and like put up all of our, our vectors of, of, of awesomeness that we didn't actually deserve because they were just given to us. Um, or disparity, you know, whatever the opposite of awesome is. Um, I'm like, why, why don't you guys just talk? Did, did Christianity not do it right? Like enough? Like, why don't you just talk about charity? Yeah. Why not talk about 
peace? Why not talk about like love? Isn't that what you're really trying to do? Why dress it up in all this stuff? And, and I wonder if that's because they can't, they can't get funding for that. And maybe there's, there's some core impulse of charity that they're trying to, to give, but the, the language itself obscures that and then allows for all this other weird false stuff to creep in because they're not just using these old terms, uh, that, that, that my tradition has given rise to and, and a lot of people have hammered at and, and right. checked for. Right. The Jordan Peterson has a stock story that he tells in the Bishop Barron video recently where a student comes up to him and says, why don't we just tell the perfect archetypal story instead of having yeah. Harry Potter? And, okay. Yeah. And, and, and Peterson says, because these stories bring it closer and Peterson is right. There's a real habit now. So I have lots of friends who are not Christians and into new age or atheism or all these kind of things. And so there's a, there's a real, what has happened in our secular society is that, well, we're not going to talk about Jesus love. We're just going to talk about love and we're going to talk about, and so we're going to, we're going to use all of these words that any particular religion has been stripped off of. And in that way, we'll get around the problems of pluralism. Okay. You, that's exactly the same issue as this purely archetypal story in that hmm. it, what the, what the story gives it is context and locality and, and nearness. That's right. Yeah. And so, so if I say racism nice. and I could say, well, okay, let's throw out the word racism. Let's just use bias because, okay, let's, let's move up the hierarchy and say, okay, you've got racism, sexism, homophobia, all of those are examples of bias. So let's throw out all those words and let's just use bias and let's make bias our enemy. Well, right way, right away, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to become aware that you have a problem in your hierarchy. Yeah. That you need bias. I just, you know, there's more water well, in that thing. You, you need you, bias. Do you need sin? In a way? I mean, for that the, is a really complicated question. <laughs> in order, well, okay, well, on one level, in order for the story to make sense, you need an enemy. So you need yes. sin in that. But I'm, yes. I'm, I'm saying, do, do you not need that gap? Do you not need that missing of the mark? Do you not need imperfection in order for the story to matter? In order for your own life to matter? If in order for you to be anything other than a purely archetypal, typical every person, do you not need all that stain and, and discomfort? And, and failure, constant failure. This is a very old, very long, very passionate theological debate that has crept up repeatedly in Christianity. How, and many, how many churches has it spawned just by the arguments that have had? It's not been that type of debate, but it's a big one. And my best answer to that is... We don't know any other world beyond this one of sin, which says, I can't answer that question. Because the question then goes into God's, why is there sin in the world? That gets into theodicy. Mm-hmm. Is sin in the world to make us better? Okay. Could we not be better without sin? Okay. But you, but you still, you can't tell your story without it. Right. That's exactly the but, answer. But, okay. We can't tell a story without it. Okay. Because there would be no story. It's a part right. of the dynamics of the universe. Right. And it's okay. and it's exactly part of the... So when you get into places in the Bible where they want to talk about 
what will life be after sin is resolved? Yeah. You get things like, well, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more suffering. You'll get a lot of negations. Yeah, but not negations of there will be no more laughter, but that's implied. Right. Well, that's, you know, and some Old Testament ones have, you know, when it's, it's really hard for us to conceive of a story without an adversary. Yeah. Or a gap to be overcome. Or right. A challenge. Right. Right. Okay. And chaos in some ways functions in that. So in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, there's the new Jerusalem and there isn't any sea. And that symbolically there's chaos will no longer, and everybody's like, oh, I love the ocean. Why would God yeah, get rid of the that? Dolphins. That's man. right. It's really marinophobic. It's, it's a symbolic oh, message okay, yeah. that chaos will no longer, you know, you'll no longer, you'll no longer hmm. be so war and drought. And, and everything's a desert then. Well, this is, this is, this I mean, is, the, the metaphor itself breaks down when right. you try to break the metaphor. Right. And so to ask a question like, well, what happens when there's no rival? What happens when there's no challenge? What happens when there's no gap? And I would have to say, I can't conceive of a story without those things. Okay. I can theoretically imagine that, well, let's see, this is where I go is, that's the kind of question that God can handle, not me. Okay. And so that's, some would say, ah, you punted. Well, okay. Yeah. What, what happens when you get to fourth down and you know you're not going to make it? You punt. <laughs> yeah. But how do you, how does one, how does one embrace their sin then in, in the right way? Or I guess acknowledge it as kind of like, not only as an adversary, but kind of like as a, as a guide through life and, and, and in, in one say, in one sense, perhaps to see sin everywhere is to also see the, the overreaction to glory, right? Is, is to see it kind of as a friend, like somebody that's. So in second Corinthians, Paul is plagued by something and we don't know what it is. A lot of people talk about the thorn, the thorn in the flesh. And he, Paul has had a, Paul talks about having amazing revelatory experiences where he's drawn up into third heaven and he's been given all of these spiritual gifts and he's been given all of this stuff. And so he's, you know, okay. So if God is going to, you know, grant someone a request, it should be the apostle Paul. And so God says, Paul says, okay, can you take care of this thing for me? And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to leave that with you. And it's like, but, but isn't you being God mean you're supposed to? And God says, no, being God means I get to write the story. And if I'm going to, um, I'm going to leave this as part of your story and you're going to have to live with it, Hmm. which is finally a tremendous act of submission. On behalf of Paul. On behalf of Paul. Is to accept his... Yeah, his fault, thorn. His thorn, yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah, whatever that is. And, and, and in a way, I guess the acceptance is the freedom from it. Yeah, yeah. yeah and because, see, here's an ironic thing again. If you make, If you make your whole life about that thorn, it now functions as that idol. Yeah. And so you have to give that up too. Mm-hmm. And there is, and there's tremendous freedom in that. And you, you, you regularly find people, and this is, I forget what I was listening to. Someone, it might have been your conversation with James and, and someone basically, once you have that island, once you say this, I won't give up. Yeah. 
they see people like that all the time. You know, this maybe they truth. were abused as a child and th- they will never give up their, even after the person who harmed them is dead, they will never give up the anger against that person. And talk to a shrink about that and they'll say, yeah, that's, uh, that's, they're going to ruin their life. This is why forgiveness is so powerful uh-huh. because you, you go to that person mentally if they're no longer there and you say, I forgive you. I release you from the evil you did against me. And now you're free. So in a sense, okay, let's wrap it up because we have a meetup coming. Yep. Um, in a sense, I, I, we started out with the problem of how does, how do we make a cohesive society? But in, in talking about social justice, they have a very noble goal of trying to save the world. And, and that I wouldn't say is not your goal too. Like you are, you are participating in a project of salvation. Um, and I don't mean to make it grand. Maybe you'll try to run away from that, but it really does seem that that's part of the purpose of having this building around you and doing the work that you do. Um, and it, it seems like there's, there's some sort of qualitative difference in the way that you interact with uh, that you do your work and, and, and it, it comes about in the stories that you tell with the, the homeless people where you recognize with some distance and some humor their situation and you don't condescend to the tragedy of their life but you, you it's almost like you embrace that tragedy as just a part of them and, and and you accept that and in that acceptance do you think that that through doing that do you do this consciously um in doing that is that the better way to go than than to, to pity them or, or to to merely give them the shelter of your concern they don't let me so Daniel is particularly eloquent about this. I'll be sitting and talking to Daniel. I'll say, Daniel, you know, why don't, why don't we, you know, why don't you let me help you get into, why don't you let me help you get off the street? Don't try to save me. That's what he says to me all the time. Don't try to save but me. But he keeps on coming here. Yeah. So, so what is salvation is he looking for? Yeah. So he's looking for something from you. He's looking for friendship. Yeah. He's looking for someone he can talk to. He, what he doesn't want to lose is his freedom. And for him, his mm-hmm. freedom means living this incredibly self-destructive life. Mm-hmm. And part of what I, what you learn, I mean, a lot of this for me goes back to being in the Dominican Republic, where you go there as a North American missionary with a very generous mission agency behind you. You go to desperately poor people for whom just a few dollars can mean a world of difference in their lives. And you very quickly realize just how impossible it is to save human beings from themselves, these structures, from all kinds of things. And so, no, social justice warriors, I, I, they often have great hearts because they want to make the world a better place. What they are is naive about human beings. You, you will not banish someone's racism in any of the ways that they talk about. Then maybe it'll help, but racism will not be banished. Hmm. Neither will bias. It's, it's, these are, you know, these things are too great and they're, they will warp other things. 
you know, there are how many pieces of literature written about some missionary who went someplace to try to save a group of people and completely screwed up his family. Yeah. It's what we do. And, and almost every, almost every salvation project hmm. is to rescue us from someone else's former salvation project. So, <laughs> you know, the whole, I mean, racism was invented to resolve certain things for the people of the time. Yeah. Huh. DDT, antibiotics, um, you know, internal combustion engine, Wait, electricity, okay. so you're, goes forever. It, on one level, you are advocating for a, an utter fatalism, but there's something else that you're advocating for. Yes, yes. You're not saying give up. No. Well, I don't believe... I don't you're believe we disengage. should give up. That's right, that's right. And... Misery, deliverance, gratitude. I end all my servants, sermons that way. You cannot see this is the basic format of Protestant Christianity is that God has saved the world. And we say, well, why is it all screwed up? He's not done saving it. Well, God has saved you. Well, why am I still all screwed up? He's not done saving you. Well, then what should I do? You should act like your savior. Well, how did my savior act? He loved others. He lived. He lived your welfare at my expense. That's what he did. That's what it means to love. Wait, say that again. Your welfare at my your expense. your welfare at my expense. That's what love means. Okay. If I say Ben needs this, Ben says, "Paul, I need ten bucks to get back home." Yeah, I give you ten bucks. That's your welfare at my expense. Yeah. Okay. Now, ten bucks is a little thing, but maybe yeah, there might be reasons why you ask me for ten bucks and I don't give it to you. Yeah, um, love is really complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but. You Christianity basically says God has saved the world. It is not yet saved. Christians until that point have to act like their savior. How does their savior act? Well, you look at Jesus on a cross. Okay. All right. So, no, I'm Christians are should be the most optimistic people around because yeah. I'm not in the, any the least naive, the most optimistic. I would hope so. Some weird kind of yes. intersection of those yes. two things. Because people are as Jordan Peterson says, chimps filled with snakes. That's how we are. Huh. He's very Calvinist, in my opinion, which is probably why I started listening to him. Uh, maybe you know what he 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 tries to keep his belief system as that yeah. postulated thing over there, right? Which is right. very wise maneuver to do what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. But I no, I'm I'm very optimistic, even though. Hmm. Um, I, I'm not a climate change doubter. I think we're probably cooking the world and I think it could be disastrous. I mean, when I hear Christians say, well, God won't let such and such bad thing happen. I think, well, there was the dark ages. <laughs> there was the bubonic plague. Um, you know, most all those folks were good Catholics when they got wiped out. Um, yeah. there were, I mean, bad things happen in the world all the time and could we be cooking the world for a really bad thing yeah mm -hmm. hope not stuff yeah stuff doesn't mean you're going to become a gnostic just to stop the end of or <laughs> to get out of the end of the world i guess gnostics are the most dangerous people because what? well you have to they're running from something they no because embrace. if you know the gospel of judas jesus real problem was that he had a body and so if you really want to liberate people, get them out of their bodies. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah. Well, but we can do that with what we're doing right now with some VR goggles and, you know, a couple ounces of ketamine or whatever it takes. That's right. 
But no, I, I hope for the, um, my, my hope is in a new heavens and a new earth. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't try to do right by this earth. Mm -hmm. I think that's just stewardship yeah. and it's love. Well, it's a, it's a form of renewal, isn't it? Is it not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up. Okay. Thank you. I don't know. We're going to cut it at some One point. love. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs>